Welcome back to uh, the School of Theology, and as Neil has just been telling us, uh, we have two more after this evening in terms of uh, topics. Actually, it's one topic in two parts, uh, but it's perhaps one of the most important of topics, and that is the covenant. Uh, and uh, there, are, there are some who would advocate uh, that the covenant is the central uh, doctrine of Scripture. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks uh, looking at uh, the doctrine of the covenant and some of its implications uh, next week and the week after. And then there'll be a Q&A uh, session the first Wednesday evening of June. Now, if you're, um, if you're uh, technologically savvy, uh, you can send... Uh, your questions uh, to the Facebook page uh, and there'll be a link there if you want to send them to a a, a particular site. Is that right? Uh, You can do it the old-fashioned way. You can email email, uh, Sarah McKillop, uh, my secretary, or you can handwrite your question and just deposit it uh, either, either here this evening uh, I'll see if I can get a, get a box or something for you to put them in. Uh, or maybe you can think about your question over the next couple of weeks and uh, deposit them uh, next week and the week uh, after. Now before I begin, uh, I want to make a shameless uh, plug uh, for a book, a brand new book called uh, Name uh, Above All Names, uh, written by, and this sounds terribly sycophantic, uh, two of my uh, favorite uh, Scottish uh, preachers in all the world, uh, Sinclair Ferguson and Alistair Begg, uh, a two more unlikely duo you would never uh, wish to encounter, I think. Uh, but, but I've written just this wonderfully extraordinary book uh, on, on Jesus, uh, on the Lord Jesus. And um, uh, there are, I think, a couple of hundred copies uh, floating about, uh, some out here on the table and on a cart, and some over in, uh, in uh, the Palmer building. Uh, but I, I really do recommend this uh, book uh, for yourself or for uh, members of your family. It would be a wonderful graduation gift uh, for somebody graduating from high school or from uh, college, uh, or uh, a, a beach uh, book. Uh, those of you who have the stamina to read books at the beach, which I don't fully understand, but um, uh, let, me, let, me, let me shamelessly plug uh, this, uh, this brand new book. It just arrived a couple of days ago, and congratulations to, uh, to Dr. Ferguson. Now, our topic uh, this evening is uh, the restraint of sin. And uh, let me remind you of uh, how we got to this point. Uh, we have been considering uh, the doctrine of man, uh, anthropology, and we've looked at uh, such things as the creation uh, of man, and we've looked at uh, the image of God uh, in man and the importance of uh, Genesis 1, uh, 26. And uh, we've also looked at how sin came into the world uh, through Adam and the consequences of that, Uh, the transmission of sin through Adam to all of his uh, posterity, uh, as in Adam all die. Uh, We've also looked at the effects of sin, and in particular we spent uh, a bit of time looking at the effect of sin upon uh, the will and uh, the difference between free will and free agency, uh, that we retain one, namely free agency, but we have lost Uh, the other, uh, free will. Uh, We also last week began to look at what is sin and the essence of sin and and the various ways in which the Bible describes uh, sin. And now I want us to to look at a a topic uh, which I'm calling the restraint of sin. And actually this is a a lecture on common grace Uh, Because that's basically what common grace is. God uh, restraining the effects uh, of Adamic sin upon the world, upon creation itself and uh, upon uh, humanity. 
Now let's uh, quickly go through uh, point number one, which is really uh, just a summary of what we've been looking at. Namely, that the effects of sin, the effects of the fall, uh, in relationship to the image of God, uh, man, uh, Adam and Eve were created uh, in the image uh, of God. Genesis 1.26, our shorter catechism, summarizes that. How did God create man? Uh, God created man male and female after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. And then uh, the statement in the Westminster Confession, in chapter 6, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. And then the next statement uh, from this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil. A statement then of total depravity, uh, that we, uh, every aspect of humanity, uh, every aspect that defines us as human beings, uh, has been uh, affected in some way or another by uh, the sin of Adam. Uh, the uh, the doctrine of original sin, the transmission of sin from Adam uh, to all of his posterity. Now, it was also important for us to uh, see, as we did a couple of weeks ago, uh, that although the image of God has been defaced, it hasn't been completely destroyed. Uh, and I think I cited uh, a statement of John Calvin to the effect that the image of God in fallen man is a bit like a ruined castle. Uh, you, can still, you can still, as it were, discern that there used to be a castle here and all that is left now are the ruins uh, of that castle. And then uh, we also talked about the universe, universality of sin, uh, both uh, in terms of the individual and the doctrine of uh, total depravity uh, and also in terms of the spiritual inability that is a result or a consequence uh, of uh, the transmission of Adamic sin. So that, uh, well, I'm using a phrase here that belongs to John Murray, uh, which we looked at, that the dispositional complex, um, the direction of, um, of the needle in a, in a, in a compass uh, is towards magnetic north, while the direction of the of the needle in the compass of humanity uh, is uh, towards self and sin. Now, uh, from there, uh, we are now going to ask the question, uh, are there occasions, are there examples where God restrains that sin, either in creation itself or in its manifestation in uh, the sons of Adam in, in fallen uh, humanity. I, I'm asking the question, is man as bad as he possibly could be? Or let me reverse the question, uh, is there any goodness, uh, real goodness, true goodness, genuine goodness, is there any goodness in fallen man, in unregenerate uh, man, and, and you may think that the answer is self-evident. Uh, theologians don't always see things that are self-evident to understand. Uh, and the history here uh, is an interesting one, uh, not least because uh, we, even within our own tradition, that answer has that question has been answered uh, in in uh, completely opposite uh, ways and directions. Uh, unbelievers may have some common operations of the Spirit, uh, the Westminster Confession says. In other words, that the Holy Spirit may work and manifest uh, his work by means of uh, effects that are brought about even in uh, the life, uh, the mind, uh, the, the actions, the disposition of one who is essentially unregenerate, of an unbeliever. 
so right at the heart of the Westminster Confession, our own statement of, uh, of, of doctrine and, the, and the denomination to which we belong, uh, uh, unbelievers may have some common operations of the Spirit. Now, what that is uh, suggesting is the doctrine of common grace. Um, that there is a grace of God that is short of saving grace. There is a, a grace of God that is, that is manifested and revealed that is short of regeneration. Uh, it is still an evidence of the grace of God, but it is not saving grace. It's not redeeming grace. And, and it's called, uh, for, for good or ill, it's called common grace. Now, the doctrine of common grace uh, was established... Uh, to, to explain uh, three particular uh, issues. One, uh, the blessings that are enjoyed by the reprobate, uh, the statement of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount that the sun shines upon the just and the unjust, the rain falls on the just and on the unjust, the clouds don't look for believers and say, uh, when they find a believer, let's drop some water here, but uh, no, no, that person's not a believer. It, it it drops its, uh, its, its rain uh, according to the providence of God. Uh, to, to explain, one, then, the blessings enjoyed by the reprobate. Secondly, um, the laudable qualities that are often displayed by unbelievers. Some of you, uh, some of you might say that some of the best uh, political uh, leaders the country has ever had actually were not themselves believers. Uh, sometimes uh, we, we draw the conclusion that, that sometimes an unbeliever makes a better politician uh, than an unbeliever. A, a, a lawyer sometimes can be a better lawyer than, a, than somebody who is a believer. Um, uh, courageous patriotism. Uh, we, we see that as a virtue. Uh, we see that as something uh, that is laudable. We see that as something commendable. We, we congratulate that where we see it. Uh, courageous uh, courageous patriotism, uh, but that, that is manifested in, in soldiers who may not be believers, they may not be Christians, uh, but they manifest something uh, of uh, an integrity, a devotion, a loyalty, a commitment, a brother, a band of brothers kind of idea, uh, or, or loving parenthood. Uh, let's, uh, let's be honest and uh, face the facts that sometimes uh, unbelievers have made better parents than believing parents. Uh, their marriage has kept together, perhaps, on, the, on that note uh, alone. Uh, and uh, it's just one of, the, it's one of the realities, it's one of the issues that we face. H- how, come, how come unbelievers manifest laudable uh, qualities, even though their hearts are unregenerate? The third uh, reason... Uh, for the doctrine of common grace is to um, address the issue and to give some kind of theological answer to the presence of um, cultural achievements, uh, laudable cultural achievements in uh, music or literature or art or architecture or or medicine or engineering or or whatever it is. Uh, That cultural achievement, that that skill, that ability to discern, that uh, ability to create, uh, to create a piece of music uh, that, uh, that uh, goes about in your head for days. Uh, and there's, there's, there's beauty there. You see something and you see, you see or hear something that is, that is beautiful. Uh, is, is, is there such a thing as beauty uh, in the culture of un? Believers in the music of unbelievers, in the art of unbelievers. And if the answer to that is no, then we have no business uh, listening to that music or, 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 or looking at that, uh, at that art, uh, would be my answer. So th- those are the three areas uh, that uh, cause us to ask the question, what explains those things? Uh, that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, uh, that there are laudable qualities and virtues in unbelievers, and that there is such a thing as uh, cultural beauty, uh, an, uh, a cultural uh, aesthetic of beauty uh, among unbelievers. Uh, is humanity, therefore, as bad as he could be 
uh, or as it could be? And the answer is no. Uh, the answer is no. Now, uh, to be sure, in the 20th century, there's been a great deal of uh, loss uh, in uh, optimism with regard to humanity. Uh, there's a great deal of pessimism, in other words, in the literature of the 20th century. It's one of those things uh, that you study in English literature, uh, from uh, Dostoevsky to uh, Huxley and George Orwell and uh, Graham Greene and William Golding, and all of these uh, individual authors express something of a pessimism uh, about the trend uh, of uh, society at large and uh, humanity at large. Nevertheless, although that is true, and much of that is true in the wake of the First and Second uh, World Wars, uh, to be sure, uh, and as a reaction to the optimism of late uh, 19th century uh, post-Kantian uh, Enlightenment uh, optimism, to be sure, uh, nevertheless, humanity does reveal what Augustine called uh, splendid vices, is what he called them, uh, virtues among the heathen, but uh, displayed ultimately for self-love. Uh, self, uh, uh, but, but they were nevertheless virtues. Now Calvin uh, took that notion of Augustine, um, maybe not directly, but he, he took that notion and expanded uh, upon it uh, to a considerable degree and attributing uh, these good things, these laudable things, these virtuous things, uh, to the grace of God, uh, to what we now, for sure, call uh, the doctrine of common uh, grace. And I've got some uh, quotations here from Calvin. I'm not going to read them all uh, for you. The second one there, uh, under D2. Uh, here it ought to occur to us that amid this corruption of nature, there is some place for God's grace. Right? And Calvin uses the word grace. Not such grace as to cleanse it, but to restrain it inwardly. Right? That's why I call it the restraint of sin. Thus God, by his providence, bridles perversity of nature, that it may not break forth into action but he doesn't purge it within. In other words, there's, a, there's an outward restraining of the manifestation of sin and evil uh, by God. Uh, then in the next quote, um, um, a lengthier quote, and I'll just pick up uh, some lines and try to, try to follow with me as I, as, I, as I go down. I'm not going to read it all to you, but... Uh, he talks, for example, in the second line there of a universal apprehension of reason and understanding by nature implanted in men. Now, do you remember right at the very beginning of the course, uh, and of course you need to remember because there'll be a, an exam at the end of this semester, uh, we talked about the doctrine of general uh, revelation, and uh, general revelation and common grace are, are related uh, to each other, of course. So Calvin is, uh, is talking about a universal apprehension, we see it everywhere, of reason and understanding. Uh, he'll talk later in this uh, paragraph uh, about uh, philosophers, and he's talking about uh, Plato and Aristotle and, and, and the like. Uh, and uh, Calvin had a great deal of respect. He had a very high uh, view, uh, especially, of uh, uh, the contributions uh, of uh, men like Aristotle and, uh, and Plato for their ability to reason. Uh, for Calvin, there's only one logic, and it's God's logic. Uh, and there isn't a separate Christian logic from, uh, from non-Christian logic. There's just logic. Uh, there's, there's, there's one math. Right? There isn't a Christian math and an unbelieving math, 2 plus 2 equals 4, whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Uh, and uh, as uh, Kuiper says uh, somewhere, uh, it, when, you, when you measure something, a, a thing is 2 millimeters, whether you're a Christian or an unbeliever. Uh, it is still 2 millimeters uh, in, uh, in diameter. Now, further on down in this quotation, Calvin says, after the apostrophe, Now the discovery or systematic transmission of the arts, or the inner and more excellent knowledge of them, which is characteristic of a few, is not a sufficient proof of common discernment. Yet, because it is bestowed indiscriminately, 
upon pious and impious. It is rightly counted among natural gifts. Right? There are, there are artistic gifts. And Christians have them and, and unbelievers have them. And he, and he calls them natural, uh, natural gifts. And then further on down, he says, Shall we say that the philosophers were blind in their fine observation and artful description of nature? Uh, Shall we say that those men were devoid of understanding who conceived the art of disputation and taught us to speak reasonably? Shall we say that they are insane who developed medicine, devoting their labor to our benefit? What shall we say of all the mathematical sciences? Shall we consider them the ravings of madmen? No, we cannot read the writings of the ancients on these subjects without great admiration. We marvel at them because we are compelled to to recognize how preeminent they are. But shall we count anything praiseworthy or noble without recognizing at the same time that it comes from God? Let us be ashamed of such ingratitude into which not even the pagan poets fell. For they confessed that the gods had invented philosophy, laws, and all useful arts. Those men whom scripture calls natural men were indeed sharp and penetrating in their investigation of inferior things. Let us accordingly learn by their example how many gifts the Lord left to human nature even after it was despoiled of its true good. Well... Oh, that's Calvin, you know, at his rhetorical best. You can, you can hear the rhetoric in his, uh, in his writing. You can hear the preacher, certainly, in his, uh, in his writing. And uh, that's why some of us just love reading John Calvin. Uh, the, just the sheer force of his argumentation. Uh, even, even, even the pagans acknowledge that these gifts are from, uh, from the gods, as he says. And shall we, who are Christians and know the one true God, not recognize the same? Namely, that these gifts are gifts bestowed by God himself, even upon those who are actually natural men, uh, unconverted men. Right? He's, he's arguing for a doctrine of common grace. Not saving grace, not redemptive grace, but common grace. So let me summarize what Calvin is saying uh, in, in three statements. That unbelievers may grasp the truth, that unbelievers are gifted, and that all truth and gifts are from the Holy Spirit. That's basically what Calvin is saying. Now let's jump ahead uh, to the late uh, 19th century, turn of the 20th century, uh, to Abraham Kuyper. Uh, and those of you who remember the days of Dr. DeWitt, and, and that's many of you here, uh, would have heard much, I'm almost certain, uh, of Abraham Kuyper because, as we were reminded just a few days ago, uh, Dr. DeWitt actually owns Abraham Kuyper's napkin ring. If you visit him, he may, uh, he, won't, he won't give it to you in your hands, but he may hold it and demonstrate that this is, uh, this is Abraham Kuyper's napkin ring. Abraham Kuyper was a, was a prime minister of the Netherlands. Uh, he founded the Free University of Amsterdam. He was uh, the editor of a n- newspaper uh, for almost 50 years. He, he founded uh, a, a political party uh, uh, and, and, and much more. And he was a systematic theologian uh, who wrote uh, systematic theology. And in 18... 98 uh, gave the stone uh, lectures on Calvinism at Princeton Seminary in the glory days of uh, Princeton uh, Seminary and those lectures um, difficult to be sure as they still are to read and and, and to my ears uh, still a little idiosyncratic but they have been tremendously uh, influential. And the, the six lectures uh, that he gave at Princeton uh, 100-plus uh, years ago uh, on, uh, on Calvinism, uh, in which, among other things, uh, he spoke about politics and he spoke about Calvinism and the arts and uh, Calvinism and economics and, and so on, uh, and, uh, among other things, spoke about this doctrine of common grace. 
there is a particular grace which works salvation, but there is also a common grace by which God, maintaining the life of the world, relaxes the curse which rests upon it, arrests its process of corruption, and thus allows the untrammeled development of our life in which to glorify himself as creator. And I'll I'll jump over the next quotation, again taken from those stone, uh, from those stone, uh, the next two quotations taken from those stone uh, lectures. But there was uh, Abraham Kuyper uh, advocating the doctrine of common grace. Uh, Let me let me briefly mention here uh, Herman Bavink um, uh, and uh, and uh, fellow Dutchman and fellow uh, theologian. Uh, who who wrote a a book uh, called Common uh, Grace, uh, or or maybe not so much of a book, but a a fairly lengthy um, and and fairly profound uh, article on Common Grace, in which he said this, that God did not leave sin alone to do its destructive work. He had, and after the fall, continued to have a purpose for his creation. He interposed common grace between sin and the creation, a grace that while it does not inwardly renew, nevertheless restrains and compels. All that is good and true has its origin in this grace, including the good we see in fallen man. The light still does not shine in the darkness. Uh, Sorry, I I introduced the negative. The light still does shine in the darkness. The Spirit of of God makes its home and works in all creation. Uh, And uh, uh, Bavink then uh, underlining and underscoring uh, what Kuiper had said. And and, uh, these men are contemporaries, uh, Bavink and uh, and Kuiper. Now, there is a little bit of a difference uh, for those of you who want to pursue this a little bit further. There is a a little bit of a difference between Kuiper and Bavink. Uh, Kuiper uh, valued common grace uh, in the arts and sciences, uh, but he he still retained a kind of separatist position. So uh, he forms uh, a Christian political party and he forms a Christian newspaper and he forms a Christian university and so on. And and Bavink, on the other hand, viewed the matter in a more integrationist way, uh, seeing Christian involvement in the arts and politics as a matter of cooperation rather than separation. So there's a thing, a, a, a difference between Kuiper and uh, Bavink as they, as they work practically the doctrine of common grace uh, out into everyday uh, life. Now, there was a very famous uh, reaction to the doctrine of common grace uh, in, um, in the early part of the 20th uh, century. Uh, Hermann Huxemer, uh, uh, triple knowledge, triple breach in the foundation of reformed truth, uh, uh, a massive uh, three-volumed reformed uh, dogmatics. Uh, all of these things come out of Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, of course, uh, I once made the dreadful mistake of preaching at Seventh Reformed uh, when Dr. DeWitt was the senior minister there back in, oh, I don't know, in 1997 or 8, so, somewhere around there. And, and I, the phrase common grace came, was, was on my way out of my lips uh, from the pulpit and I, I was trying to push them back in and it was too late and the words came out and realized I'm, I am using the term common grace in Grand Rapids in Michigan of all places uh, where, where this response uh, had taken place uh, a complete denial of common grace uh, on the part of uh, the Protestant Reformed uh, Church Uh, advocating the view that only the elect uh, receive grace, that grace in the Bible is a word that's only used of redemptive grace and is only ever employed in the elect. Uh, That's the view. And that the reprobate receive no grace uh, whatsoever, uh, and that the unregenerate cannot do any good, even virtues as sins, because their motivations are wrong, because ultimately 
Uh, they may look good, but actually they're serving themselves, and, and it is in fact a form of idolatry, uh, would, be the, would be the argument. Now, in, in response, the famous uh, Christian Reformed Church Synod of Kalamazoo in 1924 uh, put forth uh, the, the famous three statements uh, on the doctrine of common grace that there is, besides the saving grace of God, shown only to those chosen unto eternal life, also a certain favor or grace of God which he shows to all creatures. And then secondly, there is a restraint of sin. God, through the general operations of of his spirit, without renewing of the heart, restrains sin in its unhindered breaking forth, as a result of which human society has remained possible. And then thirdly, the unregenerate, though incapable of any saving good, can perform what it called civic good. Uh, Right, so there was a a spat uh, in the first quarter of the 20th century uh, among the Dutch uh, and the the formation of the Protestant Reformed uh, Church, uh, which among other things denied entirely the doctrine of common uh, grace and uh, the Christian Reformed Church. Uh, in 1924, uh, issuing these three statements in favor of common grace. Now, let's, uh, let's uh, think a little, a little deeper now, theologically, the, di- the difference between special and common grace, or redemptive grace and common grace. That special grace, or saving grace, or redemptive grace, call it what you will, saving grace embraces only the elect. Common grace embraces Everyone. Common grace is not redemptively efficacious. It doesn't result in salvation. It doesn't result in forgiveness. It doesn't uh, result in a new creation, a new heart. It restrains. uh, It may even promote the good, but does not purify. And then common grace is set within the framework of special grace. Even... Even the benefits of common grace, even, even the goodness that God, uh, that God displays to all of creation is, is ultimately for the sake of the elect. Uh, it is ultimately for the sake of God's main purpose, and that is to save his people that they may glorify him forever. Now, uh, let's go to the Bible, uh, finally. And, uh, and see where we see the doctrine of common grace uh, in the Bible. Uh, beginning in Genesis 20, and these are just examples, of course. Uh, Genesis 20, this is, uh, this is uh, Abimelech, uh, who has taken Sarah because uh, Abraham has cast her off as, uh, as his sister. Uh, but Abimelech has been kept uh, from uh, abusing uh, Abraham's marital relationship to Sarah, uh, and, uh, and God says to Abimelech in a dream, uh, God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me, therefore I did not let you touch her. Uh, once Abimelech learned that uh, Sarah was Abraham's wife, uh, he was indignant because he saw, he saw the virtue Whereas, whereas Abraham, the man of God, had actually told a lie. Uh, in, in other words, there was, there was a civic uh, good uh, manifested in this ungodly uh, king, uh, Abimelech. Or uh, in Romans uh, chapter 1, uh, therefore God gave them up uh, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, Right? And, and then Paul uses uh, this, this verb, to give over or to abandon, uh, suggesting that before this, there is a, there is a restraining of sin. Uh, among the Gentiles, God, God eventually, eventually, in the providence of God among the Gentiles, there's a point in which God gives them over. He hands them over to what they desire. But before that, right, the, the implication is that before that, there was, a, there was a restraining on the hand of God. That restraint is common grace. 
Or Romans 13, uh, the, the famous passage where we are told to pray for the, those, the powers that be as... Um, uh, whom I think of Cranmer, uh, uh, Cranmer in the liturgy of the of the of the uh, prayer book of the Church of England, uh, to, uh, or am I thinking of the translation of the King James Bible? Maybe I'm thinking of the second. Anyway, the powers that be, the the the, the, the governing powers, the the political powers, uh, rulers are not a terror to good uh, conduct, but to bad, right? So even even pagan civil authority knows or should know and its, and its purpose and function is to reward the good and to chastise the evil, to reprimand and, and punish the evil. That's what civil government is established to do, to reward the good and to punish the evil. And sometimes, now we get bent out of shape when civil government doesn't, doesn't do that and does the opposite of that, but there are times when civil government does that. It does the right thing. Uh, and, and that civil government isn't a Christian government. They're not, they're not necessarily believers. Uh, it is an example of common grace in civil uh, authority. Now let's, uh, let's go down to point number five, the effects of common grace. And, and I have um, seven of them, I think, um, in, in, in class uh, at seminary, I'm, I'm always saying I've got seven things and then I'm on number eight or nine. Uh, but I th- I'm trying to count here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, I think, seven. Uh, the first is forbearance. Uh, forbearance and long-suffering towards the world. How, how patient God is with the world with the world of sin, with the world of ungodliness, how, how patient he is uh, with this country where, where millions of uh, aborted uh, fetuses, ab- aborted children uh, cry out uh, for vengeance. Uh, if we understand uh, anything of uh, Revelation chapter 6, uh, how, how long, O Lord, uh, and God forbears, he's, he's, he's patient. He shows common Grace, forbearance, and long-suffering toward uh, the world. He suspends his, his uh, wrath. Uh, or secondly, uh, humanity receives the blessings of divine benevolence. You know, why do the, why do the wicked prosper? Yeah, the wicked prosper. Uh, they, 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 they have it good, uh, bad grammar, but uh, you, get, you get the sentiment. Uh, it's what troubled... Um, it's what troubled Asaph in uh, Psalm 73. Why do the wicked prosper? Um, humanity then receives the blessings of divine benevolence. They receive good things. Uh, thirdly, God places restraint upon sin. Uh, let me, this is a quote from Calvin. Uh, For did the Lord let every mind loose to wanton in its lusts, doubtless, there is not a man who would not show that his nature is capable of all the crimes with which Paul charges it. Right? I've lost the context of that statement, um, but, uh, but we all have it within us. You know, what, does, what did Robert Murray McShane say? Uh, the, the seed, the seed of every known sin lies within our hearts. And the day we don't think that is the day we need to remember Paul's words. Take heed, you that think that you stand. Take heed lest you fall. Um, for the civilization of society. Uh, I think we all recognize, don't we, that some societies are more civilized than others. Uh, when you drive on the left hand No. Um, I mean, there are some societies that are more civilized than others, that recognize law and order, uh, that uh, recognize uh, the value of uh, free speech, uh, that recognize the value of uh, integrity uh, and truth, and uh, the value of of culture and art and and music and so on. We recognize what we call the civilization of society. Now, there's been a kind of reaction to that uh, of late, uh, that that's a kind of uh, imperialization, 
uh, that, that uh, all cultures are equally valid. So, uh, so the cannibal out in the jungle, I mean, it's, it's, it's just judgmental on your part to think that your culture is better than that culture. Uh, and, that's, and that's just ridiculous. Uh, we, 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 recognize, we recognize that some cultures are more civilized, um, more uh, loving towards fellow men uh, than, than other cultures uh, that, that see goodness and uh, truth and recognize it and, and reward it uh, and punish that which is evil. We recognize within our own society uh, gradations uh, of civilization. And uh, m- many of you and, and uh, the gray hairs among us, and, and, and I include myself, uh, you know, we find ourselves saying, you know, in my day, uh, because we see the slippage. Uh, we see things, things that uh, once used to be virtues uh, have been forgotten. Um, southern culture, perhaps. Uh, good manners, uh, perhaps. Um, I opened the door, you know, for a, a, a young woman in New York a year, two years ago maybe, when my wife was there, and, uh, and uh, I got the finger. Um, it, it, it sort of took me aback, uh, and I thought, okay, I'm, I'm not in the South. Um, but we recognize civilization uh, and gradations of civilization. Uh, fallen humanity, this is point uh, five, fallen humanity is capable of domestic affection and exemplary citizenship. Uh, putting that a little, a little more, uh, w- w- with a little more definition, that family love, uh, storge in Greek, is not actually confined to the regenerate. Um, some, of us, uh, some of us perhaps can say, and uh, I've met an, a, a lot of Christians who will say that some of my best friends are actually not believers. They're, they're absolutely loyal. They're absolutely dependent. In, in, a, in a moment, in a heartbeat, if I find myself in trouble, they're going to be at the door, you know, with, uh, with lemon pound cake and chicken soup and, and so on. I know Christians do this, but, but unbelievers do this too. Uh, and they show kindness and affection and, uh, and uh, raise their children in, uh, in with, you know, with, with, with great civility. Um, uh, uh, artistry. And you have early examples of it in, uh, in Genesis 4. And then, uh, then you've got Bezalel and Aholiab in Exodus 31 uh, and so on. Uh, skilled in uh, gold and silver, brass, gems and timber. And because Bezalel and Aholiab are members of the covenant community. Uh, but such gifting need not be confined to the regenerate. Uh, gifts of, um, of art. Um, and, and music and, uh, and uh, uh, literature. Was Robert Burns a believer? Dr. Ferguson, shake your head or nod your head. No, he doesn't think so. Um, and yet, I have heard him cite Robert Burns uh, first thing in the morning and last thing at night. Uh, doesn't do anything to me at all. Uh, but uh, but the, the recognition of art, uh, the recognition of, uh, of beauty in, in music uh, and in, uh, in literature and um, medicine and technology and, and so on. Uh, note the following two uh, conclusions uh, here. Uh, one, the legitimacy of the secular calling... Uh, or, or perhaps even to push that a little further, uh, the dissolution of the secular and holy calling. Um, you know, a doctrine of common grace will say that n- not, you know, one calling isn't more holy than another calling. Uh, that God, that you use your gifts, no matter what those gifts are, they are gifts of God's grace. They are gifts of God's spirit. So if your gift is medicine, you use that gift for God's glory. If your gift is uh, composing music, you use that gift for God's uh, glory. Uh, And the beauty of art for art's sake, uh, because it is a work of the Spirit. And um, uh, I have a little section there, uh, which I won't go into, but uh, I don't think we should pit uh, the cultural mandate against the Great Commission. 
uh, the cultural mandate of Genesis chapter 1 and the Great Commission of Matthew 28. Uh, the Great Commission of Matthew 28 says that we are to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that Jesus said. Right? The Great Commission is not to go and evangelize, period. Right? The, go- the Great Commission is about making disciples And making disciples is about bringing disciples in subjection to everything that Jesus taught. And one of the things that Jesus taught is the cultural mandate to exercise dominion uh, over over the cosmos, to be explorers, uh, to go where no man has gone before. Um, So I I don't think we should pit uh, the cultural mandate against the Great Commission. They are complementary, one uh, to the other, and uh, there's a there's a place for the church in in both in both the Great Commission in evangelism and proclamation of the gospel, and also in uh, in instructing uh, the cultural uh, mandate. Uh, what are the instruments of common grace? And uh, let me. Um, let me uh, go through these fairly quickly. Uh, the first one you see, I have a question mark, reason. Uh, it's a big thing in Thomas Aquinas in, uh, in, his, uh, in his Summa, uh, that reason uh, restrains what he calls the lower passions. I'm, I'm not, I think it comes with a lot of baggage, so I'm not, I'm not persuaded uh, by it, but I, I, I have it there. Secondly, general revelation. Uh, God, God's revelation of himself in creation Uh, which renders humanity inexcusable, the argument of Romans uh, 1 and and 2, uh, that the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. They may not be regenerate, but they they still actually know and discern the law. Right, even with respect to the unbeliever, God did not leave himself without witness, Acts 14:17. General revelation as an instrument for common grace. Uh, the church as an instrument for common grace. You know, the, the fact that a church is situated in a certain community, uh, whether it's here in downtown Columbia or whether it's in the suburbs somewhere, um, that the very presence of the church is a sanctifying and restraining influence. That would be my argument. Uh, that it has a, that it has a, it's very presence there. I, and I don't simply mean the building. I mean the fact that God's people uh, worship there and witness there and, and live and work and, and exercise kingdom dominion there. Th- that that in itself is a, rest- a restraining influence upon society. Uh, because we are called to be the salt of the earth, uh, a, a preserving mechanism uh, within, uh, within society. A government, good government, can be... Uh, uh, an upholder of good and a restrainer of the evil. Uh, and that's, uh, that's what Paul talks about in Romans 13. It's what we should pray for, uh, for, for a, a civil government, and not necessarily a Christian government, whatever that means, uh, but, but a civil government that upholds the good and punishes uh, the evil. Uh, interesting idea that public opinion, uh, the moral consensus of the collective, Uh, that perhaps there is some advantage in taking polls uh, and gathering gathering opinions of of a collective and how that often exercises a restraint upon society. Um, Providence. You know, God visits in judgment on societies. Uh, and, and, and God sometimes exercises the opposite and comes in, in restraint and, and, and blesses. Uh, and all of that is uh, common grace. Uh, let me pop, pop down for time's sake to number seven, the limitations of common grace. Um, let, me, let, me, let me go down to B7B. Uh, is there such a thing as unregenerate science? Uh, or is there such a thing as regenerate science? Uh, that's a discussion that's popped up today uh, in Christian circles. Some have pushed things so far as to, uh, as to reject 
altogether science that's, uh, that's done by unbelievers. You know, if, if you're heading for heart surgery, I, I'm not sure that the first question you want to ask is, are you a Christian? I, I think the first question you want to ask is, how many times have you done this surgery before? <laughs> and how many people have died? I think those are the sort of questions I want to know first of all. Uh, whether they're believers or unbelievers is uh, at that point beside the point. Uh, it's the doctrine of common grace. Uh, who is it who has given that person uh, the skill to perform that surgery? And the answer is the Holy Spirit. Uh, They may not be regenerate. They are in need of the gospel. They need new hearts. Uh, But the skills that have been given to them uh, and the wisdom and knowledge that has been given to them is of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Final teaser for you to ponder. uh, What I call a a teleological concern uh, of common grace. If there is such a thing as as true Holy Spirit-given beauty among the works of the unregenerate, so, uh, so uh, uh, let, me, let, me, let, me, uh, let me pull something out of my head here. Uh, Mahler's Fifth Symphony. Let me, let me pull that out of my head. Uh, there is no way in this wide world that Mahler was a believer. Um, uh, he was a deist at best. Um, but his Fifth Symphony. Is, if, if, you, if, you, if you can perceive something of exquisite extraordinary beauty will will that carry over into the new heavens and the new earth Uh, will the paintings of uh, Rembrandt and Van Gogh and Gauguin Matisse and and others uh, because of their exquisite beauty uh, not the nude ones perhaps but the ones, of, uh, the ones of exquisite beauty, you know, will, they be, will they be there? Will there be a museum in the new heavens and new earth uh, that, is, uh, that is a demonstration of the validity of the doctrine of common grace? Uh, there's a teaser for you and maybe a question uh, to ask uh, in, uh, in our forthcoming Q&A uh, time together. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you as we live in a world that hasn't been wholly given over to uh, the disposition of its inhabitants uh, to evil. But uh, here and there and everywhere we see uh, evidences of beauty and goodness and valor and truth and humanity and love for, uh, for fellow men and uh, a desire to preserve something of the integrity uh, of the universe in which we live, skills that, uh, that baffle us in their complexity, uh, that improve the quality of our lives, uh, for which we give thanks. We thank you that you uh, restrain, uh, you restrain this universe from the chaos into which it would spin. And that you promise that one day this universe will be recreated and refashioned to be an expression in its totality of your beauty and glory. Now bless us, we pray, as we further spend some time together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.